Hi, I'm Pastor Colin Smith, Senior Pastor of The Orchard. We're a church that loves the Bible, and this podcast features sermons from pastors at each of our six locations. Our prayer is that these messages will help root you in the Word of God, nourish you in the Gospel of Christ, and help you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Here's today's message. I want to begin with a question. Do you find that confrontation is something that's hard for you to do? Confrontation may be easier for some, but I don't think anybody would say that they enjoy confrontation or conflict. In fact, many studies show that conflict in the workplace and in personal relationships is one of the leading causes of stress. In lives today, perhaps you're in a situation where you need to confront a coworker or a neighbor or even a manager. And it becomes even harder when you need to confront someone close to you, a friend or a parent, or maybe even your own spouse. You may need to share truth that they don't want to hear or stand your ground for something that you believe is right. Perhaps you're here today and you're wondering how you can face confrontation in your life. Maybe you've been pushing it away, hoping you wouldn't have to have that conversation. Yet I think we can all agree that confrontation is a part of life, something we all need to face. In fact, it'll make things worse if we try to brush it under the rug. But the good news is that God gives wisdom so that we can stand firm and confront others in a way that's helpful and loving. And that's what Daniel chapter 3 is all about. It's a story about three men confronting a powerful man with God's truth and how their confrontation was able to lead to blessing and even a pagan nation to worship the Lord And through their example, my hope is that you'll find courage to stand firm in the word of God for what you believe is true. My prayer is that you'll see how your confrontation might be the greatest blessing you can give to those around you. The greatest blessing. Our story begins in Verse 1, with King Nebuchadnezzar building a golden statue. We read that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Daniel chapter 2, we saw this king experienced the power of God. Daniel told him his dream and he gave the interpretation. God revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar that he would be the ruler of the golden kingdom. He was the golden head. And after hearing this, we saw the king bow down before Daniel and and worship his God. He declared to Daniel, that your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Yet in chapter 3, we see this king erecting a golden image, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, commanding all peoples and nations and languages to bow down to this golden image. It's clear from this passage that King Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand what it truly meant to worship God. 
God revealed that the king Nebuchadnezzar would be the golden head. But he also revealed that there would be another kingdom that would come and crush the other kingdoms. But this king ignored that part of the dream. All he cared about was himself. All he cared about was the golden head. I'm the golden head. Everything else didn't matter. And he believed that worshiping Daniel's God was the one sure way that he could secure his rule. I worship this God, Daniel's God, that I'll be able to achieve my dream, that I will get great power. This was, in fact, exactly the same case, the same thing for the rich young man in Mark chapter 10. Do you remember that story in Mark chapter 10? A rich young man came to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus tells him, well, keep all the commandments. Do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery. And the man said to Jesus, all these I have done since I was a boy. And do you remember what Jesus said after that? He told him to sell all he had, give it to the poor. Take everything that you have, give it to the poor. At this, the man walked away because he couldn't do it. The reason he followed Jesus and kept all the commandments is so that he could get what he wanted out of life, so that he could acquire this wealth. How could Jesus strip away what he loved the most? I'm worshiping you, Jesus. I'm keeping the commandments because I want to get rich. How could you tell me to sell everything? Well, that's exactly the same with King Nebuchadnezzar. He may have bowed down to Daniel and his God. He may have declared, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But it was only to secure his dream. It was only a means to an end. He worshipped not because he loved Daniel's God, but because he loved what Daniel's God could give to him. So here we see this king erecting a golden image to showcase his greatness. You know, it's sad to think that just like this king and this young, rich Man, there are so many people in our world erecting their golden images, chasing power and recognition, chasing wealth and lust. If only they could see the one true God, if they could see Jesus Christ and his truth, they could see how God sent his son for them. If only they could see after the command went out, to all the peoples and nations and language, languages to worship the golden image. We're told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are now officials, high-ranking officials in the provinces of Babylon, were told that they disobeyed the king's order. We know this because certain Chaldeans or other officials in the king's court sold them out to the king, Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. After hearing the king's command, there are many ways that these three men could have responded. As officials with power, they could have tried to gather up others to protest the king's decision, couldn't they? They could have gone directly to the king and confronted him, telling him that, This displeased God who years earlier interpreted his dream. Or like Marcus Brutus, remember that story? The Roman senator, they could have tried to conspire against the king, recruiting supporters to assassinate this pagan. But what do these men do? As respectfully and quietly as they could, 
with a gentle confidence. They answered with their actions. And with their actions, they made, they made it clear, we will not bow down to your golden image. You know, as high-ranking officials, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have had other officials under them. And these were honorable men. And honorable men garner respect from other officials, lower-ranking officials. Can you imagine one of them trying to convince Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego to go and bow down to this image? My Lord Shadrach, you you must go and, and bow down to this image. No, you know that I only worship one God, the God of my fathers. Yes, my Lord, but but the king's going to throw you into the fiery furnace. You're going to die. You guys do what you have to do. But I worship one God and one alone. I'm staying right here. I will not go. Perhaps as the other officials went to worship this golden image, I imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego praying to their God, praying to God to change the king's heart, to save their lives, to help this nation. When their lives were at stake in chapter one, what did they do? They prayed. Why wouldn't they pray here as well? Sometimes the wisest course of action isn't always a direct face-to-face, head-on confrontation. Sometimes a more indirect approach followed with lots of prayer is wiser. For example, you may find out that your friend is having trouble in her marriage. And the worst thing you can do is to meet up and say, so I've heard you're having trouble in your marriage. How can I help you fix it? The better course of action could be to meet with your friend and say, listen, you just been on my mind. I've been praying for you guys and just wanted to let you know I'm here if you need anything. I'm here if you need anything. Or someone you care about maybe considering a not so wise path. Has that ever happened to you where you see a friend And they're going to go in a path that's not so good. And the worst thing you can do is go to them and say, hey, why would you do that? What a foolish thing to do. Are you thinking straight? But rather to go and say, hey, did you consider some other options? Just want you to know I'm praying for your decision on this. I'm here if you need to process anything. Let's work through this together. That's why Proverbs 15 verse 1 states, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Sometimes we need a indirect approach. Well, unfortunately, the indirect approach didn't work for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had no choice but to confront the king face to face. Because we're told the king became furious and ordered that these men be brought to him. And they had to stand face to face with this king. What's interesting to see here is that the king wanted to give them a second chance. Look at verse 15. He says, now, if you are ready, worship the image. It's as if this king is saying, guys, I'm a little angry right now, but I really like you guys. I don't want to throw you in the furnace. We have history. After all these years together, are you going to throw our relationship down the drain? Now, you see what I'm saying? He's looking at them and he says, I want you to bow down. When you are ready, worship this image. Look at how they respond. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Just as there is a time to take an indirect approach, there's also a time when it's right and good to take a direct approach. As high officials, these men at this point could have said, well, he's giving us a second chance. And they could have reasoned with themselves, if we want to influence this nation, we have to stay in power. Guys, let's just bow down. God will understand. Or they could have thought, if we want to teach this king about God and evangelize to him, we need to maintain a good relationship with him. Let's just bow down. God will understand. And anyways, our God is a forgiving God. He'll surely forgive us of this because he knows our hearts. Even though we're bowing on the outside, he'll see that we're not bowing on the inside. They could have made all the excuses in the world to justify their position, to justify bowing down to this golden image. But instead, they boldly confront this king to his face. This king who gave them power, this king who was trying to give them another chance. And they tell him to his face, God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to that golden image. Never. Do you see the contrast between how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshipped God? And how King Nebuchadnezzar worshipped God? The king worshipped to get what he wanted to make his name great. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshipped because they loved the Lord, because they wanted to make God's name great. That's why they were willing to give up their position, their power, their place in life, even their own lives. They were willing to give up everything because they saw there was nothing greater than knowing and serving and worshiping and living for the Lord. Their joy and satisfaction was in God and in him alone. The Bible commands us to taste and see that the Lord is good, that there's fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord, that those who seek him will be satisfied as with rich food, that God's steadfast love is better than life, that there's no greater satisfaction in life, no greater treasure in the world, nothing that comes even close to knowing and worshiping the Lord. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like treasure in a field, which a man found and in joy sold all he had to buy that field. Have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? Have you felt the fullness of joy in his presence? These men did, and they were able to say with boldness, with confidence, with courage, if our God wanted, he could surely deliver us. But if he doesn't, we will never worship this golden image. Well, of course, their answer infuriated the king. So he had his men turn up the heat in the furnace at as hot as they could get it. And after binding up these men so they couldn't move, he had them thrown in the fire 
We're told the fire was so hot that the men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the fire were burned and killed. But eventually all three of these men were thrown into the fire. Perhaps it took a few, several guards to get them up there. Because they kept getting killed because it was so hot. And as this is happening, in this part of the story, we can't help but wonder how God could allow this to happen. Will the Lord not deliver his people, those who are faithful to him? How, How could God allow this? But look what happens next. Verses 24 and 25. This is so awesome. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And rose up in haste, he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Weren't there just three guys? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who is this fourth person in the fire? Did the Lord send an angel to protect these men? Nebuchadnezzar says that he looked like the son of the gods. Well, seeing that the men were alive and well in the fire, this king called them out and he tells them to come out. And we're told that the fire did not overpower them. Not a single hair was singed. There wasn't even a tiny scent of fire coming from their clothes. It's amazing. Have you ever done a campfire? You can't get that smell off your clothes. Sometimes I wash it and it's still there. But these men... It wasn't even a hint, a scent of fire on them. And after seeing that the Lord delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see the unthinkable happen. This is amazing. The king changes course and commands all to worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 29, therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Instead of all the peoples and nations and languages worshiping this golden image, we see the people worshiping the Lord. Well, there we have the story of Daniel chapter 3. As we close, let me leave you with three ways that you can apply this to your life, what this means for us. Number one. Remember that Jesus Christ is worth it all. Remember that Jesus is worth it all. There's nothing in this world worth more than following and worshiping and serving and living for Jesus Christ. Nothing better than what we're doing here together, gathered, worshiping and singing to him and and serving him. There's nothing better in this world than that. You know, because of your commitment to God's word, you may have to refrain from certain things in this world, maybe certain events. Perhaps a bachelor party or a bachelorette party. Or to pursue purity, you may have to say no, even when someone threatens to end the relationship. You may have to confront a spouse or a friend because they're hurting you, because things can't continue as they are, because of sin. You may have to report a coworker to HR because they're being unethical, because the way he treats you is not appropriate. You may have to respond with kindness and respect even when others are mistreating you and hurling curses at you. Because of this, you may end up losing your friendship. You may end up being passed up for a promotion. Maybe you'll be excluded from a group. Maybe you'll lose out on an opportunity. Maybe your marriage won't end up the way you thought it would. But remember 
that there's more to life than all these things. Because at the end of the day, none of these things can truly satisfy our souls. But you know what? Jesus can. Because there's nothing greater than knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When we confront the world, when we confront others, there's always the risk of losing something. But remember this, no matter what, you will never lose Jesus Christ. He will never let go of you out of His hand. And he's the most important thing. He's the one who can satisfy and give you peace. He's the one who can deliver you. Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is worth it all. Second, this story shows that the Lord is with you in the fire. The Lord is with you in the fire. Now think about this. God could have brought rain and put the fire out. He could have snuffed out the fire with his mighty power. Yet, instead of getting rid of the fire, look at what he does. He stands with his people in the fire. You know, in the Bible, fire refers to trials and hardships in life. And we're told that we're going to face fire in this world. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial, as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus even says that those who follow him will be persecuted. That you will have trouble. I know this world can be harsh and a hard place to live in. And though the Lord doesn't promise that we'll never face the fire, he does promise that he will always be with us in the fire. Can you imagine the strength and power and comfort these men got from seeing the presence of the Lord with them? I don't know what you're facing today, what's causing fear or worry or sorrow or anxiety. I don't know the fiery trials that are weighing you down, but I know this, the Lord is with you and he is standing with you in the fire. Do you see him? Do you see him standing with you? And in the end, remember that that not even a single hair, not even a hint or scent of the fire will be able to hurt you. The Lord is faithful to deliver his people. And when the fire of judgment comes on that last day, no cancer, no conflict, no worry, no evil, no sin, not even death will be able to weigh you down. You will be delivered from every trial. You'll be delivered from the fire. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 3 states, Fear not, God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God. Third and finally, remember that Christ will bring an end to all conflict. There will be no more conflict, no more confrontation when Christ comes. As we see the conflict continuing in Ukraine, as we experience division and conflict in our nation, as we encounter disunity, even in churches today, you may wonder if unity is possible. And here we see a picture of what's to come. 
Through this golden image, the king tried to bring unity to the people, to his kingdom. That's why in verses 4 and 7, we keep hearing this phrase, the peoples and nations and languages to come and worship. But at the end of the chapter, what is it that ultimately brings unity? All the peoples and nations and languages come together, what? To worship the Lord. It's the Lord who brings unity. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar brought the Israelite captives to Shinar. That's interesting. Why Shinar? What's the point of Shinar? Do you know where Shinar is? If you look in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, it's right there. You're told, we're told that Shinar is the place where the people tried to build the Tower of Babel. That's where the peoples and languages and nations were divided. This story is teaching us that there will come a day when God will gather all his people from all the nations and peoples and languages and he will bring us together and we will worship him. It's the Lord who brings together. It's the Lord who ends all conflict. It's not the United Nations or the Olympics or Bono or BTS. I love all those things. But none of those things will bring unity to our world. What will bring unity to our world is Jesus Christ. And on that last day, Christ will have victory. Christ will unite all things. And every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we ask for your help because we see that in this world we will have trouble and we will face the fiery furnace and some of us today are facing trials in our lives right now and I just pray that you would give them strength give us strength to persevere help us to see the glory and the wonder and the joy of serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the trial Lord give us joy And help us to remember that in the end, you will have victory. We will be delivered from sin and all our trials. Help us to persevere, looking forward to the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Pray for your strength. We pray for your spirit. And pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Orchard Sermon Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please subscribe, become a regular listener, and share the link with others. And if you're in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, we'd love to welcome you as our guest at one of the Orchard's six locations. For more information, go to theorchard.church. That's theorchard.church.